Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello, this is Charles Roberts. It's January 19th, 2018, and this is Out of the Question, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. How are you today, Andrea? Doing well. Well, today we have a a little different sort of format than what we've had before. I'm going to be asking some questions of Andrea because um, our main question today is, what are some of the false teachings and false doctrines of cults and false religions? But behind that question is a much more significant one in that we want to find out what is it that draws people to alternative religions and cults in particular? And Andrea, you at one time were a member of something that would be called a cult. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And maybe before we do that, we can maybe define our terms. Because the word cult comes from a Latin term that simply means worship. And there are books that date back to the 60s and 70s in evangelical Christian circles that talk about the dangers of the cults and that sort of thing. And it includes some groups that today I don't think would be quite considered that say, for example, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So I've jotted down a few things that I think, at least from my understanding, define what a cult is. I think that most people would would agree. Being in a cult means you're involved in some sort of religious group or otherwise that involves a high degree of control, of manipulation, of coercion, of exploitation, and abuse. Some or all of those kind of things. With that in mind, would you tell our listeners what it was you were involved in and your husband and about the time frame when you got started with this. Certainly. Now, let me take exception to your definition to start off, because that may be a good dictionary definition, but as is common, if there are people whose religious beliefs don't agree with yours, and you're both not going to have a standard with which to judge, it's so easy to label someone a cult. It would be equivalent to, it'd be equivalent to calling somebody a terrorist That's some, or a racist. You see, you've just ended the discussion because we all know that terrorism and racism is wrong. Yes. So you have, a, you have to have a starting point in order to determine whether something is true or something is a cult. So after having been involved with the Church of Scientology from, let's see, it was like 1972, all the way through 1982, so that's a a nice long time, I would have considered I was in a true religion. Because Mm -hmm. if we're going to look at religion, there there are lots of ways we can define religion, but we can really define it in terms of what's your ultimate concern? What's the thing you focus on? What's the most important thing in life? So it depends on your starting point. Do we believe that All religions have merit. That's really the party line now. And those who espouse that will say, we all worship the same God. Well, if you are orthodox in your understanding of the Bible, those statements are not true. All religions are not the same, and we don't all worship the same God. And so, for my way of thinking now, having been raised Roman Catholic, gone all the way through 13 years of Catholic school, having abandoned the Christian faith, because you see, from my point of view, if you weren't a Catholic, then you might as well give up Christianity, because you see, we did learn about those people who were called the Protestants, and they were wrong, so there's no reason to go examine them, because they were wrong. So I was left out on my own searching for those things that would agree with me. Mm-hmm. Yes. I now have an understanding because up front I'll tell you, and you know this, but listeners need to know this, that I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. So really, I will break all religious views into two categories. Those that are covenant-keeping according to God's law and those who are covenant-breaking with God's law as the reference. So I don't think there are a multitude of false religions that don't fit under that category, that those that do not ascribe to what the Bible teaches. 
so there and there and we have to admit that there are various synergistic forms of things where they'll take some of this and some of that and some of the other things. So please don't misconstrue that anything I'm saying is that I determine whether someone is truly born again or not. We're now talking about religion and religious philosophies and the help I can give to people who have that question behind the question is to really understand if you don't have a starting point then the answers are all going to be different and they're going to be relative. See, if the Bible is anything, it's not relativistic. The Bible is objective in the sense that it says, thus says the Lord. I am the Lord, I change not. And they're commandments given. They're not suggestions, they're commandments. And so that's now my starting point. And I ultimately feel that through my entire life up until the point of my conversion to Christianity, I was looking for what the Bible says we all need. And I was fighting my own sin and, quite frankly, looking for something that would tell me it's not your fault. And Scientology is great at telling sinners it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. Because part of the tenets of Scientology is we don't live once and then die once, and then there's the judgment. It's that with a very Eastern bent, we have these cyclical lifespans, and we have many past lives, and depending on how far you go, you get some real interesting fiction on how we got here and all the things that happen, but ultimately, it's not what you're responsible for because you sinned against the living God. It's about all those things that happened to you in the process of many lives, and now they were going to help you get past those encumbrances. Well, let me ask you a question. The dates that you gave as to when you were involved, I believe L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986, so he was still very much alive when you were in the Church of Scientology. But I think because of the popularity of some of the TV programs that are currently on about people leaving Scientology, some of the books that have been recently published, Going Clear is one of them, people have this idea, and and you can maybe share with our listeners if at any point when you believed that this was the truth, well, let me, let me rephrase that. At a certain point, you did not believe that any longer, and so you left the Church of Scientology. How easy was it for you to do that in terms of the dynamics and the physics? In other words, did somebody try to compel you not to? You know, we hear these horror stories about people who were locked up in rooms and beat up and all that sort of thing. What was your experience in leaving the church? So the accounts that you're hearing are accounts that happened to the people who were saying it long after I was not physically in Scientology anymore. However, I did experience some of those things at the point at which I did want to leave. And that's not atypical. It doesn't always get brutal, but sometimes it does. And you have to understand that it's really not so much you come into Scientology and somebody lays out, this is what we're about. No, it's not at all like that. Scientology is very good at, but so are lots of other organizations and marketing people, at listing enough to find out what bothers you. What's, mm. what's, your, what's your big, in Scientology, I'll call it your ruin. What's the thing that's ruining your life? So I was one of those people who was very good at being able to listen and talk to people and find out their ruin. Amazingly, no matter what the problem was, Scientology dealt with that. Isn't that amazing? You, you come to the right place. And if it was a young man who did not have lots of girlfriends or any girlfriends, I assured him this could be taken care of. The stuff that's your impediment, now it might be that he didn't shower, or it might be that he was boring, or it might be a lot of things. But of course, we're not going to bring that up. What we're going to bring up is that you have things from your past, you have things lodged in your mind that are encumbrances to you moving forward in life. Mm. And all it takes is spending a little bit of money, and I'll help you figure out how to do that, and then you'll be better. So a lot of people come in with the hope that they're going to be better. Now, in looking back, I can say realistically that most people are aware of some hole or emptiness in their life. I call that the Jesus hole. Mm -hmm. We all have Jesus holes. 
Praise God we have Jesus holes because then we are interested in finding a remedy. So the Bible gives us a remedy, but then the rest of other religious persuasions and what we call cults, and cults, I would say, are more derivations from established religions that add a twist that allow somebody to get control of other people, either controlling what it is they do with their time and their effort or controlling their money. And in Scientology's case, it costs a lot then and now. When I hear the stories of what it costs now to be in Scientology, my husband and I laugh. Back when I was selling Scientology in that time frame I gave you, if you had a 12 and a half hour intensive counseling session, it cost a certain amount of money. But if you bought 150 hours at one time, we would sell it for you at the discount package of $4,750. <laughs> Today, that's the cost of 12 and a half hours. Wow. Yeah. So, so they, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an economist to be able to see how much they tracked with inflation or not. But when I was listening to some of those stories that I was watching on the same programs you now doubt were, I think, whoa, <laughs> it'd be a lot harder now to sell 150 hours of anything to the average person. But amazingly, it takes you less time to go through all the steps than it did when we were selling it. So they probably adjusted how they went ahead and counseled because now the results were sooner. Well, for the sake of uh, clarity for our listeners, perhaps, who don't know that much about some of the process, tell me how accurate this is. Somebody gets interested in it, either they see something on TV or they see the book Dianetics, and then they find out that this is a way that I – it's a self-improvement type thing. I've got problems. I've got issues. And Scientology, even with the name, but in practice, it looks to be very scientific. I, I forgot the name of it, but you've got the machine that you're hooked up to. You hold the things and – there's some sort of meter that gauges various things. Explain what that's all about to our listeners. Okay, so let me go back a little bit. How most people, when I was involved with Scientology, got involved was either through word of mouth. They knew somebody who was in Scientology who was going to be incentivized if they got more people into Scientology. Now, most of your friends didn't know that, but there were some incentives. Sometimes it was a financial incentive. Sometimes it was just, boy, that's a great thing you've just done. But the paradigm on how a lot of people get involved is they're walking along the street and some attractive young lady or some good-looking young guy comes up to them and starts talking and then offers them a free personality test that's going to help them see where their strengths are and their weaknesses. Now, it wasn't, what's the Briggs, whatever that test is, I think, what is that called? Myers-Briggs. Myers. It's not the Myers-Briggs test, but so many people are fascinated with the Myers-Briggs test. So Scientology was latching on to the idea that people are interested, oh, let me just find out, like today people are interested in knowing what their DNA really says, and yeah. there are all sorts of things people are interested in. So they were coming in on that. So they took the personality test, and then they had somebody who was going to evaluate it for them, and they were going to tell them, based on this test, that, oh, you're really strong here, you're a little bit weak here. Nobody ever took the test and was told you have no problems. <laughs> right. Never. Right. It's not like, wow, you, you have it made, there's nothing we can do to help you. It was never that way. So then afterwards, they make you spend just a little bit amount of money and you take a communications course because let's face it, couldn't we all communicate better? But again, this is a very focused thing. You're just going to try to improve your communication. Well, at the end of the communications course, you're brought to somebody who held the position that I held. And what I was supposed to do was let you know, first of all, congratulations. I can see you made some great improvements. But I bet you there are now some other things that are coming to light that you would like to see addressed. And that's where I would do the listening and, oh, yes. And then I would figure out based on, you know, what kind of job this person had, what stage in life he was, was I going to present something that cost $100 or was I going to present something that cost $10,000? So the people in my position, we were called registrars. I don't know if they still call them that. So we were good at figuring out what we had here. 
So a part of that conversation you have with people, oh, where do you work? How did you grow up? What did your father do for a living? Do you still have brothers and sisters? Well, number one, we're listening in a way that no one ever does, Mm. or at least very rarely does. And so they're experiencing what Christians would call fellowship. Wow, these people are so nice. Do you realize how nobody ever listens to me in life? But this girl, Andrea, who I just met, she really cares about me. Mm-hmm. So once I got a sense of what he could afford, I would tell him, this is your next step. And I would sort of promise that this next step would address what he was concerned about. And so the next step was either one of two things. Either you actually got counseling, a one-on-one, or if you couldn't afford that, you learned how to be one of these counselors, and then you and another person could then just exchange counseling in the future, and it wouldn't cost you as much. And that's where that device you were referring to came in, the e-meter, which stood for electronic meter. And so this was a device, and I don't know, I'm not somebody who knows a lot about electricity. Someone who does could say, oh, I see what they were doing. You have this device. There were two leads that came out of it, Mm -hmm. and your hands were on cans. And so they would take fruit cans or juice cans or whatever it is to take off the paper. And those were the cans for the e-meter. And so now as you're talking to the counselor, the counselor has this screen and the needle on the e-meter is moving in a particular way. And that particular way, according to how the counselor has been trained, says whether or not you're having a certain reaction to something. Mm -hmm. Now, by the time you're in this counseling session called auditing, Mm -hmm. you've bought into this to some degree, enough to spend your time and your money. And so now, let's say you're talking about, remember a time when you felt sad. And you know, that's easy. Last week, nobody remembered my birthday. Oh, okay. How'd that make you feel? Blah, 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 blah. I didn't feel good. I was sad. Is there another time in your past that you felt sad? Yeah, I can remember when I was in sixth grade and nobody picked me for the volleyball team because I was a klutz. And so I was the only one standing there and nobody wanted me. Oh, okay. Is there an earlier time? Well, I remember when my little sister was born and they just didn't seem to have time for me anymore and I was sad. Okay, talk a little bit about that. Is there an earlier time? Well, most people would say, I'm sorry, I don't remember (laughs) when I was in the womb, but they'd say, is there another time? So they're pushing you to another time. So what's left if it doesn't start at conception? Oh, we must have past lives. And now whatever comes into your head, oh, okay, I I was queen of the Nile. I was a policeman in New York City. I was fighting in the Civil War. Our imaginations are rife with possibilities. And so now if you don't laugh at the person who says, is there an earlier similar time, you've just bought into a way of thinking. And after talking about this and being validated for your memory, then the auditor says, ah, the needle is telling me you feel good about everything. Well, the session is over. And people leave smiling. They feel better. Well, somebody was listening to them wasn't laughing at them. What they don't realize is that the person was writing down everything they said. So you could look at it as auditing notes that will help the case supervisor figure out what the next thing is for you. Or you could look at it as a dossier. Well, yeah, I think it's that because later on, if there are any problems with you conforming, depending on what role you have, now there are things that can be used against you. So I can remember. And whether or not this was widespread, it was certainly widespread where I was. We're trying to sell somebody the next package and they're resisting. They're saying it's too much money. And the case supervisor might share with me this confidential information that in this man's past, let's say he once took advantage of a girl and he feels really guilty about it. Mm. So now I have this information I'm certainly not going to come out and say to him, by the way, I know what you did when you were 18 years old. I'm going to talk about how we all have things we wish we didn't do. Like some people, maybe they just weren't really kind to their parents. Or some people, maybe they came close to raping someone that they knew. Now he's like, whoa, that is me. 
maybe I should go on. So maybe me, I should take more stuff. Let me let me ask you this. Um, as, as a registrar, you have this sort of preliminary thing, and then if they go on to the counseling and the use of the e-meter, that's with somebody else. That's not with you. That's not with me until they run out of the money they spent, and then they come back to me, okay. and I'm told by the auditor, I think you should try to sell another 150 hours, or I think at this point it might be good to do a combination of selling some training courses and maybe a little bit more. What the, what the person doesn't know is that the whole organization is working together to keep him on what they would call the road to total freedom. That's what it's billed as. Really, it's the road to continue paying us money. Right. So this is sort of monetizing, uh, trying to work through your problems. I mean, the, uh, the ultimate goal is, I think, uh, getting clear. Is that what it's called? That was initially Hubbard's goal and what he would talk about in his Dianetics book. But once you got people clear, you don't want to walk them out the door. No, There's no, no. More, let, let's tell them that they can become people with superpowers. They're called operating thetans. Right. If anybody wants to know all those definitions, they can find that online. When I was in Scientology, there wasn't this thing called the Internet and Google. I find it hard to believe that anyone continues to sign up because you can go back and just Google all this stuff and discover, whoa, I don't think I want to go down this road. And on that point, let me diverge just a moment and say, you know, a lot of people, because of the Internet and Google, they may be aware, but in case any listeners aren't, that L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer uh, before he created this money-making religion. Uh, he also had some very bizarre connections. He apparently was uh, close friends with a guy named Jack Parsons who worked for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and who also had some connections with Aleister Crowley, the infamous uh, Satanist of previous generations. Also, I'll throw this in as a personal reference. I'm originally from Columbia, South Carolina, and during the heyday of the rise of new religions and cults and things in the 60s and 70s, you didn't see a whole lot of that stuff in Columbia, South Carolina at least not at the point where you guys out on the West Coast might have been dealing with it firsthand. I worked at a bookstore in downtown Columbia in the mid-1970s when all of this stuff was starting to finally make its way across the country into these pockets of strong Christian cultural enclaves. And I remember people who would go up and down Main Street, and some of them came into our bookstore. We had Hare Krishnas in town. We had the Moonies. But these people... They wore this distinctive outfits. They wore these amulets around their necks. And there weren't many of them. But I began, because I was interested in religion, I would engage these people in conversation. And I remember one of the things that struck me was that they were trying to claim that Jesus and Satan were brothers or something along that line. And it turned out they were advocates of something called the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which I found out later broke away from Scientology and also strongly influenced Charles Manson. So there are all these strange connections between some of these things that uh, people don't realize when they hook their wagon, so to speak, to some of these groups and movements. There's a lot of dark force behind it. There's a tremendous amount of dark force behind it, and that's what I'm saying. Most people don't have the table set. They don't come in and they're showed, okay, this is everything that's going to happen. This is what the ultimate price tag will be. It was hiding under the guise of religion in a country that had a lot of nominal religionists, because it's not like in the era that I got involved with Scientology, we could say there were too many Christian strongholds anywhere in the country. There was a lot of nominal Christianity. And there were a lot of Christians who were sending their children to public schools mm -hmm. to be educated. So did we really have a stronghold of orthodoxy? Or did we have a lot of what our mutual teacher and mentor, R.J. Rashduni, would call churchianity? We had a lot of churchianity. And quite frankly, that churchianity was not filling the Jesus hole. Well, let me ask you this. In terms of your involvement with the Church of Scientology, did you know or would you be in a position to know of the people who were coming in and getting involved and, and really getting hooked on it? 
what percentage of these were coming from what we would consider to be Bible-believing families and, and churches, as opposed to just sort of nominally Christian or lackadaisical Roman Catholic or, or whatever it may be? I don't think I could accurately answer that question because at the time I didn't have that reference point, okay. so I wouldn't have noticed. Remember, I had long since chucked the idea that Christianity meant much of anything. Right. Right. So I, I really wasn't in a position to do it, but I can tell you that my father, who was a Roman Catholic and who had made sure that he sent us to Catholic school, was very concerned about my involvement and tried very hard to get my brother and me not to participate. But we had already been prepped for the fact that those people closest to you may be the tools of the enemy trying to keep you from discovering truth. So the more they tried to pull us out, the more confirmed we got in our resolve that this must be true, because look at all the people who are against it. Yes. So you were involved from, you said, roughly 1977 to 1982? Um, no, 1972 to 1982. I okay. had a 10-year a a run. Wow, okay. Were you married at the time that you got involved? No, my husband and I met while we were in Scientology. And just to clarify one thing you said, I was on the East Coast when I became involved with Scientology. I'm a native New Yorker who had made my way down to Virginia, who ended up in Washington, D.C., and that's where the initial part of my Scientology experience happened. He was on the other side of the country in Los Angeles, and we met on the telephone. Okay. So at what point did things start to fall apart for you as far as connecting to Scientology, or put it a better way, when did you start to really understand what you were involved with and what the real truth was? To honestly answer that question, upon my conversion to Christianity, did I really understand what was going on? At various points, there were many times of doubt and uncertainty, but because I didn't have a rock to fall back on, it was pretty easy to convince me that my problem was I was still in need of more Scientology counseling. Mm -hmm. So when you, and to answer the question that many people ask, and it's kind of interesting, at the point at which my husband and I left Scientology, by God's grace, we were baby Christians. And I mean baby Christians. I believe we had the Holy Spirit that was now informing us, but there was so much we still needed to learn because conversion doesn't mean fully sanctified. Conversion means you just change direction. And so we had changed direction. And rest assured, without the benefit of the Holy Spirit, nobody changes direction, ourselves included. Right. But because we both had a history of Scientology from the selling point of view and then from the counterintelligence point of view, and that's its own little story, we ended up on the news program 2020 mm. at a point at which it was in the interest of the media to be exposing Scientology. Right. Now, my opinion of the media isn't a whole lot higher than my opinion <laughs> of Scientology. Yes. So I look at it much more as a family feud than real differentiation. But 60 Minutes had already done a segment on it. And it was in our interest to expose some things that were happening because, quite frankly, our lives, we had a son at the time, his life, Scientology was known to deal harshly with its critics and sometimes fatally with its critics. So it was in our interest to actually get some notoriety on us. Mm -hmm. And by God's grace, we were connected with some people some of whom were believers who helped us. And they helped us at risk to themselves. So we always look back and say, why should those people have helped us? Well, all I can say now is God prompted them to the same way Ananias probably didn't want to go see that guy Saul, but God prompted him to, and he did what he was supposed to do. But the part that's interesting, Charles, is that we had all these Christians <laughs> saying to us, tell us, how do we not have our children join Scientology? What should we do so that they don't join Scientology? And my husband and I looked at each other and said, we were hoping you would tell us. How long <laughs> have you been a Christian? Some of these people had been Christians all their lives, and they were 30 years, 40 years. They'd been raised in it. And they were asking us, the newbies, 
who basically knew the gospel in its basic structure, the bones of it, but we had so much left to learn, and they were asking us, and, and they didn't seem to have a clue. So if you ask me now, why do people get involved in cults, and why might Christian kids get involved in cults, or what's probably more so the case now, Christian kids go to university and are bombarded with secularism and relativism and materialism, that if they don't have a living faith and they don't have an apologetic, if they don't have a reason for the hope that's within them, they might as well walk around with a bullseye on their face. Yes. Well, and let's get back to something you said at the very beginning and, and then jump back to this point where we are now, is that why people, what is it that attracts people to things like this? But that thing you said at the beginning is that, uh, and I agree totally, that however uh, a cult or an alternative religion may be involved with coercion and manipulation and violence, or whether it be verbal or financial, those are bad enough. But the, there's a problem that exists before any of that becomes an issue, and that is they are presenting a false worldview. They are presenting a way of thinking and looking at the world that is totally contrary to God's truth. And the direction that that will go from there, however mild or extreme may be, it won't be good in the long run. Right. I don't think I can speak with authority on what was happening in the evangelical Christian church at the point at which I got involved with Scientology because I wasn't going there. And that would be the last place I ever would want to go. I know from my husband's point of view, Christians were the stupid people because you couldn't have a conversation with them because they knew nothing about philosophy. They knew nothing about different ways of thinking. A lot of them, now some of that was his arrogance, but a lot of it was you couldn't engage in, in much conversation. And sadly, I think that's the case in a lot of churches. Well, I think he certainly hit the nail on the head there because I, my own experience, I remember the first time I read anything by Francis Schaeffer. I mean, I had a degree in philosophy from a secular university. I had been an atheist and existentialist. I had dabbled in Nietzsche and Buddhism. I did transcendental meditation. I couldn't believe I was reading the writings of a guy who was an evangelical who knew who Hegel and Sartre and Heidegger were. I, it was just astounding to me because all the Christians that I'd ever come in contact with they had just a very dismissive, they didn't take any of that seriously. I understand to some extent that's okay, but I think this gets at the heart of why some people are attracted to these alternative religions and false religions, is the cultural decline of biblical Christianity. There were influences coming in when you and I were both younger through television, media, and especially music that called into question these basic biblical truths, and also opened the door to be attracted to these things. For example, the Beatles and their foray into Eastern religions, that found its way into their music. And that opens the door to these things becoming attractive to younger people, where there's mom and dad, they're sitting there reading the paper, they look like ancient pillars, and I don't find that very attractive, but here's this alluring, exotic, the incense burning and all, whatever it may be, or, or it's very scientific and it appeals to me in a way that just got this whole stuffy hymn book I'm singing out of and the whole thing. Uh, and I think that this is, this is something that the church has perhaps failed to recognize is the importance of renewal and revitalization in the life of the family and of the church to how these things can be communicated to children and young people in a way that lets them see they're, they're part of a dynamic movement that has a, a better record than anything of changing the world for the best. Yeah, but you need a reference point. Everything is relativistic, and let, you know the world began with me, and I'm going to improve everything because we don't have to know anything about the past. Think about it. I wouldn't necessarily say, okay, Scientology did this and they were successful. They limited access to information. Early on, mm -hmm. you were told that if you started reading stuff that was negative about Scientology, that was a real red flag that something was really wrong with you. And words like treason and liability and things like that were thrown at you. But think of what America did in the 50s. We opened our houses to people we would never have over for dinner. We just call them television programs. Right. And then we started to watch 
the entertainment start influencing what was acceptable. Have a nice character, have a mean character. What attributes, what lifestyle choices, what professions someone has is going to influence. And then, of course, you have the radio and, and your records and whatever. Most parents, at least when I was growing up, had no idea what their children were listening to. Right. Even though I went to a parochial school, they had no idea of some of the attitudes that were being at least promulgated by student to student, let alone sometimes coming from the administration and the teachers and the faculty on down. So we invite all these people into our homes. No, we don't have dinner with them. In some families, the TV set was on. I mean, in our house, we had a TV in every room eventually. Yeah. Today, everybody has their social media device, and most people are looking down at them. That becomes life for them. So in a lot of ways, how people stayed in Scientology was that it was a very controlled environment. Well, certainly when you're talking about children, instead of deciding we're going to send them out to be missionaries to something they have no idea about. I mean, I can remember talking to who I would consider dedicated Christian families. Their children, their older children, couldn't even tell you what the Ten Commandments were. Yeah. So if we don't know what we believe, how easy it is to be thrown off into something else. It's pretty easy. Well, and that gets back to what I was saying a moment ago about, and again, using the example of Francis Schaeffer, is that when I was younger, and perhaps for you, if the only response your parents could give you is that, well, that's just wrong, you shouldn't do it, maybe that's not enough. And if you're not really listening to the, if you're at an idea of the music that the kids are listening to, well, that's just a bunch of screeching, howling nonsense. I'm like, you shouldn't be listening to that. But maybe, maybe you should be listening to it. So you'll have an understanding of what is being said in these lyrics or what's going on on that television program. And you do have a reference point from which you can then speak compassionately and intelligently to the person who's being lured in by that and show point by point why this is wrong. Cornelius Van Til, the great apologist and Christian philosopher, once said that the Bible speaks with authority about everything about which it speaks, and it speaks about everything. The problem, I think, is that in many Christian homes, the Bible really doesn't speak about everything. It speaks about a few things. But this is where the door becomes open for you know alternative religions and false cults, is because they do seem to be speaking about some of the things that mom and dad or the Christian school or the Sunday school really doesn't get into talking about. And what we have to confront, Charles, is the fact that there are a lot of people who are Christian in name only. Just because somebody says they're a Christian, I used to tell my children, I could tell you I'm an opera singer and a football player. Now, I'm obviously not either one, and it wouldn't take long for someone to look and say, can you sing? No, not particularly. I don't think they let women play football, at least not yet. Right? Not so yet. It would be easy to disprove. It'd be easy to disprove. But if you think that all religions are equal, and a lot of Christians don't know how to give a reason why they're not, so that you can have not only your rank and file, but in many cases, those who are leading the flock, the shepherds, basically telling you that understand your Muslim brother or your Jewish brother or your Hindu brother or your Buddhist brother. We all worship the same God. Well, anybody who buys that obviously has not read the Bible. And if they've read it, they either don't understand it or they're in real disagreement with it. Well, I think this, this nominal churchianity becomes then the, the fertile ground out of which many of these movements uh, flourish and recruit members or find people coming to them for answers. Because when you consider the sort of stuff that's, uh, and, and let's say it's more than just a nominal Christian family, maybe it's somebody where they do go to church frequently, whatever that may be for them. Uh, look at the range of things that they are being talked to about, even if it's a very conservative uh, evangelical environment. This is one of the things that initially drew me to the writings of R.J. Rushdoony, is that there was virtually nothing the man had not written about. And that really showed an application of the idea that the Bible does apply to all of life. One of his books, The Revolt Against Maturity. How many times have you had any discussion in a Sunday school class about that particular topic? You know, the messianic character of American education. So all of these things, just a vast array of things that the Bible actually does speak to. But if you don't teach these to your children, if it's never discussed 
in a, in a sense of what's going on today in, in the world, then somebody else comes along and sounds like they've got the real answer that you never knew the Bible had anything to say about. R.J. Rushduni was the person who brought my husband and me to an understanding of the faith. We didn't meet him for a couple of years after what we considered our conversion. And we were converted. I'm not going to minimize the the reality of the fact that we wanted to go in the opposite direction where we had been going. But he was the first person who approached us from the point of view that righteousness had a meaning. And that meaning wasn't something, because I used to say, how do you know you're righteous? The, the Bible would tell you to be righteous. How do you do it? Do you feel it? Do you have a halo? I mean, how do you do it? <laughs> And when he pointed out in his writings, and then we had 15 years of having face-to-face meetings with him, that righteousness was synonymous with justice, and that justice had to do with the law of God. Suddenly, what I had been looking for, and what my husband had been looking for, because he was a philosophy major, which he always called, he he majored in pre-cult. That's how he considered his degree. Um, (laughs) It set him up. Some people go pre-med, they become doctors. He was a philosophy major. He was headed for a cult. So it was Rush Dooney who helped us see that you don't say yes to God as if you're doing God a favor. It's that all men are worshipers. We were created to worship. And we're either going to worship God as he reveals himself or something else. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes we transfer that to someone else. And he understood he could give us the only, this is the only place we ever found a good answer to why we joined a cult, why other believers joined a cult, because he pointed out that man is in rebellion against God, and apart from the intervention of the Holy Spirit, he will find all sorts of really seemingly acceptable ways to go ahead and rebel. And he'll put nice faces on it, and We could see that within the church, whereas we met some amazingly good people, amazingly helpful people, with two people who were not all that safe to be around initially, but they had no basis. They couldn't give a reason why Christianity was an answer for them or anyone else. And that became very obvious to us, especially in evangelical circles. Well, and the Bible presents a clear and solid psychology of human nature that explains, for example, why people go off on all these tangents. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about, and in this he describes the basic condition of every human being, that every person knows there is a God, they know they're accountable to that God, but what do they do? They suppress the truth, they literally... In a, in a psychological or emotional or metaphysical sense, they hold that truth down. They suppress it in unrighteousness, to use his term. And that is the fundamental dis-ease in every human being. And that's the foundation of a real Christian psychology, is that that's the starting point, is that whether or not you have recognized who God is, who you are in him, or whether or not you're still in that position of suppressing that truth and holding it back in unrighteousness. An analogy I love, and I use this especially when I'm communicating that portion of Scripture to children, is have you ever tried to stuff a suitcase too full? And Mm. so you sit on one side, and the other side pops up. Now you have to sit on the other side, and that pops up. And maybe, just maybe, you can squeeze the zipper around, which might mean that it's going to break soon. But that's a good illustration of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Our sin keeps cropping up. And in any cult group that is motivated by controlling people and getting their resources, they're going to help you suppress the truth until you're not even really considering it anymore because you see you know you've had the truth. And both my husband and I have been in many churches over the years, and we see so many cult-like attitudes and the way in which people are not so much tricked, but maneuvered into certain ways of thinking. And maybe because we have cult sensors that we see it and we realize, well, I wonder what came first here, the chicken or the egg? Did the cultist, did the guys who start cults say, hey, it's working pretty well for them. Hey, we'll try this too. 
you know, Rush Dooney told us a story. There's a, a secular term for what happens to people when they change their loyalties and their affiliations. It's called thought reform. It was poorly translated as brainwashing. Oh, yeah. But yeah. really what's happening is you're reforming people's thoughts. Mm-hmm. And apparently when prisoners of war were brought into camps, I believe it was in Korea, during the Korean conflict, they quickly ascertained those who were truly Christian. And they separated them out from the general population. Mm. If somebody wasn't sitting on the rock of Christianity or true Orthodox beliefs, they weren't really concerned with them milling around, talking to them, because they knew that they would be able to be changed and manipulated. So they kept the Christians separate. And I think that for a lot of us, the answer isn't, well, just lock your children away. Don't let them talk to anyone else. That's not the answer. The answer is you teach as, your, as a parent. That's your stewardship role to teach. You make sure that every area of life and thought is being informed by the word of God, not just added to, in Jesus' name, amen. And then you recognize that you don't convert your children right. because guess what? We didn't convert ourselves. Right. Yeah, that's that's the work of the Holy Spirit, and uh, it has to be that way uh, for every every person. And something else that we gain from that passage in Romans one is that everything is related to ethical behavior, in the sense that we typically think about ethical behavior. Where okay, well, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do this bad thing, but even our thought processes involve ethics. And if you are of a mind to deny the true God, you're still suppressing that truth. That is, it. that is ethical. That is an offense against God. I think that's another way that a lack of a full-orbed biblical understanding of faith has opened up the door for some of this stuff, where you've got these different realms of living as a human being, and the, the idea of ethics really doesn't involve knowledge. I, I can be pursuing different philosophies and religions, and that really is not offensive to God in any way, shape, or form. It's just an, an exercise of intellect. But that is a profoundly ethical activity. Right. And more people today are concerned about being politically incorrect and offending those who have no problem offending God. And don't think twice about offending God, because you see, they've constructed a God on what they want him to be rather than what he has revealed himself to be. And then they worship that God. So there's no way that they're holy. There's no way that they can approach holiness. And the sooner we dismiss the idea that just because someone goes to church, it means that they're pleasing God. Because if that church is a temple of Baal, God's not pleased. Yeah, and I think this is one area where um, familiarity with the Older Testament is is a, a roadmap of how God's people who were connected to him in a more powerful way, perhaps, than some people are today, they nevertheless heard the swan song, like you said, of Baal. Why, why did God give them all these laws? Because they were prone to moving away from the foundation of that truth. It, it, just like with us today, it was the swan song of the pagan culture, uh, the allure of that that takes you away from the truth. And uh, But for the power of God's Spirit, we would all be going down that path. Well, look, why don't we uh, maybe try to wrap this up a bit and say, what would you say then are some of the the basic motivations for people who would seek to involve themselves in cults, and what, what can be done about it? Well, I would go back to the concept that being in a cult is not necessarily the worst thing that can happen to someone. In a lot of cases, people become part of cults, and it's a step up. My husband would tell you that considering how he was living, considering what his his mindset and his world and life view was, Scientology wasn't so bad. Guess what? He stopped doing drugs. Being a child of the 60s and 70s, that was something he did. They said, you can't do that. Well, oh, I see. Why did they tell you you can't do that? Well, you're a little harder to control if you're off doing drugs. They weren't saying don't do drugs because... It's a form of idolatry forbidden by the second commandment. They were never saying that. But in some regards, he felt like, based on how they have you study, he learned some things that he hadn't learned in school. 
So what was worse for my husband? Public school with godless education, not really learning how to read well, or Scientology? Well, I think it's a toss-up, but I would have to say the, the root of the problem was how he was prepared for Scientology. So what I would tell people, not so much how to prevent yourself from being involved in a cult, because most people don't think in those terms. Usually it's family members, people who are close to them saying, what do I do? He's, he or she is heading down this road. It's important to understand that anything that doesn't bow the knee to Jesus Christ as he has been revealed in scripture in the older, and I like calling it the older rather than the Old Testament, and the newer Testament, the, the Bible as a whole, to recognize that we don't get to make this up as we go along. God isn't happy if we follow 80% of it or 90% of it. In the book of James, it says, you violate the law in one area, you've violated it all. So I guess you could say the only allegiance that is appropriate, not to the cult master, not to the pastor, not to the pope, whatever your persuasion is, it's to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have a responsibility to be faithful to that and not hang on the coattails of, well, they've always said this was fine. Or look at all those successful people. You know, Tom Cruise, the famous Scientologist, has probably gotten a lot of people into Scientology because people liked his movies. Well, how many people decide that they're going to join a church or a movement or a denomination because they like the person who's the face of it? Your loyalty has to be to Jesus Christ. Well, I completely agree, and I think that's a good point for us to wind up today, and we'll be back next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.